Chapter Ten of A Girl the Limberlost by Jean Stratton Porter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten, wherein Elnora has more financial troubles and Mrs. Comstock again hears the song of the Limberlost. The next night, Elnora hurried to Sentence. She threw open the back door and searched Margaret's face with anxious eyes. "'You got it!' panted Elnora. "'You got it! I can see by your face that you did. Oh, give it to me!' "'Yes, I got it, honey. I got it all right, but don't be so fast. You can't have it before Saturday. It has been kept in such a damp place it needed gluing. It had to have strings, and the key was gone. I knew how much you wanted it, so I sent Wesley right to town with it. They said they could fix it good as new, but it should be varnished, and that it would take several days for the glue to set. You can have it Saturday. You found it where you thought it was? You know it's his? Yes, it was just where I thought, and it's the same violin I've seen him play hundreds of times. It's all right, only laying so long it needs fixing. Oh, Aunt Margaret, can I ever wait? It does seem a long time, but how could I help it? You couldn't do anything with it as it was. You see, it had been hidden away in the garret, and it needed cleaning and drying to make it fit to play again. You can have it Saturday, sure. Saturday morning? He just said Saturday. But, Elnora, you've got to promise me that you will leave it here, or in town, and not let your mother get a hint of it. I don't know what she'd do. Uncle Wesley can bring it here until Monday. Then I will take it to school so that I can practice at noon. Oh, I don't know how to thank you, and there's more than the violin for which to be thankful. You've given me my father. Last night I saw him plain as life. Elnora, you were dreaming. You couldn't have seen him. I know I was dreaming, but I saw him. I saw him so closely that a tiny white scar at the corner of his eyebrow showed. I was just reaching out to touch him when he disappeared. Who told you there was a scar on his forehead? No one ever did in all my life. I saw it last night just as he went down. And, oh, Aunt Margaret, I saw what she did, and I heard his cries. No matter what she does, I don't believe I ever can be angry with her again. Her heart is broken, and she can't help it. Oh, it was terrible, but I'm glad I saw it. Now I will always understand. I don't know what to make of that, said Margaret. I don't believe in such stuff at all, but you couldn't make it up, for you didn't know. I only know that I played the violin last night as he played it, and while I played he came through the woods from the direction of Carney's. It was summer, and all the flowers were in bloom. He wore gray trousers and a blue shirt. His head was bare, and his face was beautiful. I could almost touch him when he sank. Margaret Sinton stood perplexed. "'Well, I don't know what to think of that,' she ejaculated. "'I was next to the last person who saw him before he was drowned. "'It was late on a June afternoon, and he was dressed as you described. "'He was bareheaded because he had found a quail's nest before the bird began to brood, "'and he gathered the eggs in his hat and left it in a fence corner to get on his way home. "'They found it afterward. "'Was he coming from Carney's? "'He was on that side of the quagmire.' Why he ever skirted it so close as to get caught is a mystery you will have to dream out. I never could understand it. Was he doing something he didn't want my mother to know? Why? Because if he was, he might have cut close to the swamp so he couldn't be seen from the garden. You know the whole path straight to the pool where he sank can be seen from our back door. It's firm on our side. The danger's on the north and east. If he didn't want Mother to know, he might have tried to pass on either of those sides and gone too close. Was he in a hurry? Yes, he was, said Margaret. He had been away longer than he expected, and he almost ran when he started home. And he left his violin somewhere that you knew, and you went and got it. I'll wager he was going to play and didn't want Mother to find it out. 
It wouldn't make any difference to you if you knew every little thing, so quit thinking about it and just be glad you are to have what he loved best of anything. That's true, and I must hurry home or I'll have to be cutting too close to swamp myself. I'm dreadfully late. Elnor sprang up and ran down the road, but when she was near the cabin, she climbed the fence, crossed the open woods pasture diagonally, and entered at the back garden gate. As she often came that way when she had been looking for cocoons, her mother asked no questions. Elnora lived by the minute until Saturday, when, contrary to his usual custom, Sinton went to town in the forenoon, taking her along to buy some groceries. Sinton drove straight to the music store and asked for the violin he had left to be mended. In its new coat of varnish with new keys and strings, it looked greatly like any other violin to Sinton, but to Elnora it was the most beautiful instrument ever made in a priceless treasure. She held it in her arms, touched the strings softly, and then she drew the bow across them in whispering measure. She had no time to think what a remarkably good bow it was for sixteen years' disuse. The tan leather case might have impressed her as being in fine condition also, had she been in a state to question anything. She did remember to ask for the bill, and she was gravely presented with a slip calling for four strings, one key, and a coat of varnish. Total, one dollar fifty. It seemed to Elnora she never could put the precious instrument in the case and start home. Wesley left her in the music store, where the proprietor showed her all he could about tuning, and gave her several beginner sheets of notes and scales. She carried the violin in her arms as far as the crossroads at the corner of their land, then reluctantly put it under the carriage seat. As soon as her work was done, she ran down the sentence and began to play, and on Monday the violin went to school with her. She made arrangements with the superintendent to leave it in his office, and scarcely took time for her food at noon. She was so eager to practice. Often one of the girls asked her to stay in town all night for some lecture or entertainment. She could take the violin with her, practice, and secure help. Her skill was so great that the leader of the orchestra offered to give her lessons if she would play to pay for them, so her progress was rapid in technical work. But from the first day the instrument became hers, with perfect faith that she could play as her father did, she spent half her practice time in imitating the sounds of all outdoors and improvising the songs her happy heart sang in those days. So the first year went, and the second and third were a repetition. But the fourth was different, for that was the close of the course, ending with graduation and all its attendant ceremonies and expenses. To Elnora, these appeared mountain-high. She had hoarded every cent, thinking twice before she parted with a penny, but teaching natural history in the grades had taken time from her studies in school, which must be made up outside. She was a conscientious student, ranking first in most of her classes and standing high in all branches. Her interest in her violin had grown with the years. She went to school early and practiced a half-hour in the little room off the stage while the orchestra gathered. She put in a full hour at noon and remained another half hour at night. She carried the violin to Sentence on Saturday and practiced all the time she could there while Margaret watched the road to see that Mrs. Comstock was not coming. She had become so skillful that it was a delight to hear her play the music of any composer. But when she played her own, that was joy inexpressible. For then the wind blew, the water rippled, the Limberlost sang her songs of sunshine, shadow, black storm, and white night. Since her dream, Elnora had regarded her mother with peculiar tenderness. The girl realized, in a measure, what had happened. She avoided anything that possibly could stir bitter memories or draw deeper a line on the hard, white face. This cost many sacrifices, much work, and sometimes delayed progress, but the horror of that awful dream remained with Elnora. 
She worked her way cheerfully, doing all she could to interest her mother in things that happened in school, in the city, and by carrying books that were interesting from the public libraries. Three years had changed Elnora from the girl of sixteen to the very verge of womanhood. She had grown tall, round, and her face had the loveliness of perfect complexion, beautiful eyes and hair, and an added touch from within that might have been called comprehension. It was a compound of self-reliance, hard knocks, heart hunger, unceasing work, and generosity. There was no form of suffering with which the girl could not sympathize, no work she was afraid to attempt, no subject she had investigated she did not understand. These things combined to produce a breadth and depth of character altogether unusual. She was so absorbed in her classes and her music that she had not been able to gather specimens as usual. When she realized this and hunted assiduously, she soon found that changing natural conditions had affected such work. Men all around were clearing available land. The trees fell wherever corn would grow. The swamp was broken by several gravel roads, dotted in places around the edge with little frame houses, and the machinery of oil wells. One especially low place around the region of Freckles' room was nearly all that remained of the original. Wherever the trees fell, the moisture dried, the creek ceased to flow, the river ran low, and at times the bed was dry. With unbroken sweep the winds of the west came, gathering force with every mile, and howled and raved, threatening to tear the shingles from the roof, blowing the surface from the soil in clouds of fine dust, and rapidly changing everything. From coming in with two or three dozen rare moths in a day, in three years' time, Elnor had grown to be delighted with finding two or three. Big Percy caterpillars could not be picked from their favorite bushes when there were no bushes. Dragonflies would not hover over dry places, and butterflies became scarce in proportion to the flowers, while no land yields over three crops of Indian relics. All the time the expense of books, clothing, and incidentals had continued. Elnora added to her bank account whenever she could, and drew out when she was compelled, but she omitted the important feature of calling for a balance. So one early spring morning, in the last quarter of the fourth year, she almost fainted when she learned that all her funds were gone. Commencement, with its extra expense, was coming. She had no money, and very few cocoons to open in June, which would be too late. She had one collection for the bird woman complete to a pair of imperialist moths, and that was her only asset. On the day she added these big yellow emperors, she would get a check for three hundred dollars, but she would not get it until these specimens were secured. She remembered that she never had found an emperor before June. Moreover, that sum was for her first year in college. Then she would be of age, and she meant to sell enough of her share of her father's land to finish. She knew her mother would oppose her bitterly in that, for Mrs. Comstock had clung to every acre and tree that belonged to her husband. Her land was almost complete forest, where her neighbors owned cleared farms, dotted with wells that every hour sucked oil from beneath her holdings, but she was too absorbed in the grief she nursed to know or care. The brushwood road and the redredging of the great Limberlost ditch had been more than she could pay from her income, and she had trembled before the wicket as she asked the banker if she had funds to pay it, and wondered why he laughed as he assured her she had. For Mrs. Comstock had spent no time on compounding interest, and never added the sum she had been depositing through nearly twenty years. Now she thought her funds were almost gone, and every day she worried over expenses. She could see no reason in going through the forms of graduation when pupils had all in their heads that was required to graduate. Elnora knew she had to have her diploma in order to enter the college she wanted to attend, but she did not dare utter the word until high school was finished, for, instead of softening as she hoped her mother had begun to do, 
she seemed to remain very much the same. When the girl reached the swamp, she sat on a log and thought bitterly over the absolute expense she was compelled to meet. Every member of her particular set was having an expensive photograph taken to exchange with the others. Elnora loved these girls and boys, and to say she could not have their pictures to keep was more than she could bear. Each one would give to all the others a handsome graduation present. She knew they would prepare gifts for her whether she could make a present in return or not. Then it was the custom for each graduating class to give a great entertainment and use the funds to present the school with a statue for the entrance hall. Elnora had been cast for and was practicing a part in that performance. She was expected to furnish her dress and personal necessities. She had been told that she must have a green dress, and where was it to come from? Every girl of the class would have three beautiful new frocks for commencement, one for the baccalaureate sermon, another, which could be plainer, for graduation exercises, and a handsome one for the banquet and ball. Elnora faced the past three years and wondered how she could have spent so much money and not kept account of it. She did not realize where it had gone. She did not know what she could do now. She thought over the photographs and at last settled that question to her satisfaction. She studied longer over the gifts, ten handsome ones there must be, and at last decided she could arrange for them. The green dress came first. The lights would be dim in the scene and the setting deep woods. She could manage that. She simply could not have three dresses. She would have to get a very simple one for the sermon and do the best she could for graduation. Whatever she got for that must be made with a gimp that could be taken out to make it a little more festive for the ball. But where could she get even two pretty dresses? The only hope she could see was to break into the collection of the man from India, sell some malls, and try to replace them in June. But in her soul she knew that never would do. No June ever brought just the thing she hoped it would. If she spent the college money, she knew she could not replace it. If she did not, the only way was to try for a room in the grades and teach a year. Her work there had been so appreciated that Elnora felt with the recommendation she knew she could get from the superintendent and teachers, she could secure a position. She was sure she could pass the examinations easily. She had once gone on Saturday, taken them, and secured a license for a year before she left the Brushwood School. She wanted to start to college when the other girls were going. If she could make the first year alone, she could manage the rest, but make that first year herself she must. Instead of selling any of her collection, she must hunt as she never before had hunted and find a yellow emperor. She had to have it. That was all. Also, she had to have those dresses. She thought of Sinton and dismissed it. She thought of the bird woman and knew she could not tell her. She thought of every way in which she ever had hoped to earn money and realized that with the play, committee meetings, practicing, and final examinations, she scarcely had time to live, much less to do more than the work required for her pictures and gifts. Again, Elnora was in trouble, and this time it seemed the worst of all. It was dark when she arose and went home. Mother, she said, I have a piece of news that is decidedly not cheerful. Then keep it to yourself, said Mrs. Comstock. I think I have enough to bear without a great girl like you piling trouble on me. My money is all gone, said Elnora. Well, did you think it would last forever? It's been a marvel to me that it's held out as well as it has the way you've dressed and gone. I don't think I've spent any that I was not compelled to, said Elnora. I've dressed on just as little as I possibly could to keep going. I am heartsick. I thought I had over fifty dollars to put me through commencement, but they tell me it's all gone. Fifty dollars to put you through commencement? Well, what on earth are you proposing to do? The same as the rest of them, in the very cheapest way possible. And what might that be?
Elnora omitted the photographs, the guests, and the play. She told only of the sermon, graduation exercises, and the ball. "'Well, I wouldn't trouble myself over that,' sniffed Mrs. Comstock. "'If you want to go to a sermon, put on the dress you always use for meeting. "'If you need white for exercises, wear the new dress you got last spring. "'As for the ball, the best thing for you to do is to stay a mile away from such folly. "'In my opinion, you'd best bring home your books and quit right now. "'You can't be fixed like the rest of them. "'Don't be so foolish as to run into it. "'Just stay here and let these last few days go. "'You can't learn enough more to be of any account.' "'But, Mother!' gasped Elnor. "'You don't understand!' "'Oh, yes, I do,' said Mrs. Comstock. "'I understand perfectly. "'So long as the money lasts and you held up your head "'and went sailing without even explaining "'how you got it from the stuff you gathered. "'Goodness knows I couldn't see. "'But now it's gone, you come whining to me. "'What have I got? "'Have you forgot that the ditch in the road completely strapped me? "'I haven't any money. "'There's nothing for you to do but get out of it.' "'I can't,' said Elnora desperately. "'I've gone on too long. "'It would make a break in everything. "'They wouldn't let me have my diploma.' "'What's the difference? "'You've got the stuff in your head. "'I wouldn't give a rap for a scrap of paper. "'That don't mean anything.' "'But I've worked four years for it, and I can't enter. "'I ought to have it to help me get a school when I want to teach. "'If I don't have my grades to show, "'people will think I quit because I couldn't pass my examinations. "'I must have my diploma.' "'Then get it,' said Mrs. Comstock. "'The only way is to graduate with the rest.' "'Well, graduate if you are bound to.' "'But I can't, unless I have things enough like the others, "'that I don't look as I did that first day.' "'Well, please remember, I didn't get you into this, "'and I can't get you out. "'You are set on having your own way. "'Go on in heaven, see how you like it.' "'Elnora went upstairs and did not come down again that night, "'which her mother called pouting.' "'I've thought all night,' said the girl at breakfast, "'and I can't see any way but to borrow the money of Uncle Wesley "'and pay it back from some that the bird woman will owe me "'when I get one more specimen. "'But that means that I can't go to, "'that I will have to teach this winter "'if I can get a city grade or a country school.' "'Just you dare go dinging after Wesley sent him for money,' "'cried Mrs. Comstock. "'You won't do any such a thing.' "'I can't see any other way. "'I've got to have the money.' "'Quit, I tell you.' "'I can't quit. I've gone too far.' "'Well, then, let me get your clothes, and you can pay me back.' "'But you said you had no money.' "'Maybe I can borrow some at the bank. "'Then you can return it when the bird woman pays you.' "'All right,' said Elnora. "'I don't have to have expensive things. "'Just some kind of a pretty cheap white dress for the sermon, "'and the white one a little better than I had last summer for commencement in the ball. "'I can use the white gloves and shoes I got myself for last year, "'and you can get my dress made at the same place you did that one.' They have my measurements and do perfect work. Don't get expensive things. It will be warm, so I can go bareheaded. Then she started to school, but was so tired and discouraged she scarcely could walk. Four years' plans going in one day. For she felt that if she did not get started to college that fall, she never would. Instead of feeling relieved at her mother's offer, she was almost too ill to go on. For the thousandth time she groaned, Oh, why didn't I keep account of my money? After that, the days went so swiftly she scarcely had time to think, but several trips her mother made to town and the assurance that everything was all right satisfied Elnora. She worked very hard to pass good final examinations and perfect herself for the play. For two days she had remained in town with the bird woman in order to spend more time practicing and at her work. Often Margaret had asked about her dresses for graduation, and Elnora had replied that they were with a woman in the city who had made her a white dress for last year's commencement when she was a junior usher, and they would be all right. 
so Margaret, Wesley, and Billy concerned themselves over what they would get her for a present. Margaret suggested a beautiful dress. Sinton said that would look to everyone as if she needed dresses. The thing was to get handsome gifts like all the rest would have. Billy wanted to present her a five-dollar gold piece to buy music for her violin. He was positive Elnora would like that best of anything. It was toward the close of the term when they drove to town one evening to try to settle this important question. They knew Mrs. Comstock had been alone several days, so they asked her to accompany them. She had been more lonely than she would admit, filled with unusual unrest besides, and so she was glad to go. But before they had driven a mile, Billy had told that they were going to buy Elnora a graduation present, and Mrs. Comstock devoutly wished that she had remained at home. She was prepared when Billy asked, "'Aunt Kate, what are you going to give Elnora when she graduates?' "'Plenty to eat, a good bed to sleep in, and do all the work while she trollops,' answered Mrs. Comstock dryly. Billy reflected. "'I guess all of them have got that,' he said. "'I mean a present you buy at the store, like Christmas.' "'It is only rich folks that buy presents at stores,' replied Mrs. Comstock. "'I can't afford it.' "'Well, we ain't rich,' he said. "'But we are going to buy Elnora something as fine as the rest of them have "'if we sell a corner of the farm. Uncle Wesley said so.' "'A fool in his land is soon parted,' said Mrs. Comstock tersely. Wesley and Billy laughed, but Margaret did not enjoy the remark. While they were searching the stores for something on which all of them could decide, and Margaret was holding Billy to keep him from saying anything before Mrs. Comstock about the music on which he was determined, Mr. Brownlee met Wesley and stopped to shake hands. "'I see your boy came out finely,' he said. "'I don't allow any boy anywhere to be finer than Billy,' said Senton. "'I guess you don't allow any girl to surpass Elnora,' said Mr. Brownlee. "'She comes home with Ellen often, and my wife and I love her. Ellen says she is great in her part tonight.' best thing in the whole play of course you are in to see it if you haven't reserved seats you'd best start pretty soon for the high school auditorium only seats a thousand is always jammed at these home talent plays all of us want to see how our children perform why yes of course said the bewildered senton then he hurried to margaret say he said there is going to be a play at the high school tonight and elnora is in it why hasn't she told us i don't know said margaret but i'm going so am i said billy me too, said Wesley, unless you think for some reason she don't want us. Looks like she would have told us if she had. I'm going to ask her mother. Yes, that's what she's been staying in town for, said Mrs. Comstock. It's some sort of a swindle to raise money for a class to buy some silly thing to stick up in the school household and remember them by. I don't know whether it's now or next week, but there's something of the kind to be done. Well, it's tonight, said Wesley, and we are going. It's my treat, and we've got to hurry or we won't get in. There's reserved seats, and we have none, so it's the gallery for us. But I don't care, so I get to take one good peep at Elnora. S'pose she plays, whispered Margaret in his ear. Aw, oh, tush, she couldn't, said Wesley. Well, she's been doing it three years in the orchestra and working like a slave at it. Oh, well, that's different. She's in the play tonight. Brownlee told me so. Come on, quick. We'll drive and hitch closest place we can find to the building. Margaret went in the excitement of the moment, but she was troubled. When they reached the building, Wesley tied the team to a railing, and Billy sprang out to help Margaret. Mrs. Comstock sat still. "'Come on, Kate,' said Wesley, reaching his hand. "'I'm not going anywhere,' said Mrs. Comstock, settling comfortably back against the cushions. All of them begged and pleaded, but it was no use. Not an inch would Mrs. Comstock budge. The night was warm and the carriage comfortable. The horses were securely hitched. She did not care to see what idiotic thing a pack of schoolchildren were doing. She would wait until the sentence returned. 
Wesley told her it might be two hours, and she said she did not care if it was four, so they left her. "'Did you ever see such—' "'Cookies!' cried Billy. "'Such blamed stubbornness in all your life,' demanded Sinton. "'Won't come to see as fine a girl as Elnora in a stage performance. Why, I wouldn't miss it for fifty dollars.' "'I think it's a blessing she didn't,' said Margaret placidly. "'I begged unusually hard so she wouldn't. "'I'm scared of my life for fear Elnora will play.' They found seats near the door where they could see fairly well. Billy stood at the back of the hall and had a good view. By and by, a great volume of sound welled from the orchestra, but Elnora was not playing. "'Told you so,' said Sinton. "'Got a notion to go out and see if Kate won't come now. "'She can take my seat, and I'll stand with Billy.' "'You sit still,' said Margaret emphatically. "'This is not over yet.' So Wesley remained in his seat. The play opened and went on very much like all high school plays have gone for the last fifty years, but Elnora did not appear in any of the scenes. Out in the warm summer night, a sour, grim woman nursed an aching heart and tried to justify herself. The effort irritated her intensely. She felt that she could not afford the things that were being done. The old fear of losing the land that she and Robert Comstock had purchased and begun to clear was strong upon her. She was thinking of him, how she needed him, when the orchestra music poured from the open windows near her. She leaned back, closed her eyes, and tried to make her mind a blank, to shut out even the music, when the leading violin began a solo. Mrs. Comstock bore it as long as she could, and then slipped from the carriage and fled down the street. She did not know how far she went or how long she stayed, but everything was still, save an occasional raised voice when she wandered back. She stood looking at the building. Slowly she entered the wide gates and followed up the walk. Elnora had been coming here for almost four years. When Mrs. Comstock reached the door, she looked inside. The wide hall was lighted with electricity, and the statuary and the decorations of the walls did not seem like pieces of foolishness. The marble looked pure, white, and the big pictures most interesting. She walked the length of the hall and slowly read the titles of the statues and the names of the pupils who had donated them. She speculated on where the piece Elnora's class would buy could be placed to advantage. Then she wondered if they were having a large enough audience to buy marble. She liked it better than the bronze, but looked as if it cost more. How white the broad stairway was! Elnora had been climbing those stairs for years and never told her they were marble. Of course she thought they were wood. Probably the upper hall was even grander than this. She went over to the fountain, took a drink, climbed to the first landing, and looked about her, and then without thought to the second. There she came opposite the wide open doors and the entrance to the auditorium packed with people in a crowd standing outside. When they noticed the tall woman with white face and hair and black dress, one by one they stepped a little aside so that Mrs. Comstock could see the stage. It was covered with curtains and no one was doing anything. Just as she turned to go, a sound so faint that everyone leaned forward and listened, drifted down the auditorium. It was difficult to tell just what it was. After one instant, half the audience looked toward the windows, for it seemed only a breath of wind rustling freshly open leaves, just a hint of stirring air. Then the curtains were swept aside swiftly. The stage had been transformed into a lovely little corner of creation, where trees and flowers grew and moss carpeted the earth. A soft wind blew, and it was the gray of dawn. Suddenly a robin began to sing, then a song sparrow joined him, and then several orioles began talking at once. The light grew stronger, the dewdrops trembled, flower perfume began to creep out to the audience, the air moved the branches gently, and a rooster crowed. Then all the scene was shaken with a babble of bird notes in which you could hear a cardinal whistling and a blue finch piping. 
back somewhere among the high branches a dove cooed and then a horse neighed shrilly then set a blackbird crying to check and the whole flock answered it the crows began to call and the lamb bleated then the grosbeaks chats and vurios had something to say the sun rose higher the light grew stronger and the breeze rustled the tree-tops loudly a cow bawled and the whole barnyard answered the guineas were clucking the turkey gobblers strutting the hens calling the chickens cheeping the light streamed down straight overhead and the bees began to hum the air stirred strongly and off in an unseen field a reaper clacked and rattled through ripening wheat while the driver whistled an uneasy mare wickered to her colt the colt answered and the light began to decline miles away a rooster crowed for twilight and dusk was coming down then a catbird and a brown thrush sang against a grosbeak and a hermit thrush the air was tremulous with heavenly notes the lights went out in the hall dusk swept across the stage a cricket sang and a katydid answered and a wood peewee wrung the heart with its lonesome cry then a nighthawk screamed a whippoorwill complained a belated killdeer swept the sky and the night wind sang a louder song a little screech owl tuned up in the distance a barn owl replied and the great horned owl drowned both their voices the moon shone and the scene was warm with mellow light the bird voices died and soft exquisite melody began to swell and roll in the centre of the stage piece by piece the grasses mosses and leaves dropped from an embankment the foliage softly blew away while plainer and plainer came the outlines of a lovely girl figure draped in soft clinging green in her shower of bright hair a few green leaves and white blossoms clung and they fell over her robe down to her feet her white throat and arms were bare she leaned forward a little and swayed with the melody her eyes fast on the clouds above her her lips parted a pink tinge of exercise in her cheeks as she drew her bow she played as only a peculiar chain of circumstances puts it in the power of a very few to play all nature had grown still the violin sobbed sang danced and quavered on alone no voice in particular just the soul of the melody of all nature combined in one great outpouring at the doorway a white-faced woman bore it as long as she could and then fell senseless the men nearest carried her down the hall to the fountain revived her and then placed her in the carriage to which she directed them the girl played on and never knew when she finished the uproar of applause sounded a block down the street but the half-senseless woman scarcely realized what it meant then the girl came to the front of the stage bowed and lifting the violin she played her conception of an invitation to dance every living soul within sound of her notes strained their nerves to sit still and let only their hearts dance with her when that began the woman ran toward the country she never stopped until the carriage overtook her halfway to her cabin she only said she had grown tired of sitting and walked on her head that night she asked billy to remain with her and sleep on elnora's bed then she pitched headlong upon her own and suffered agony of soul such as she never before had known the swamp had sent back the soul of her love dead and put it into the body of the daughter she resented and it was almost more than she could bear and live End of chapter ten